to discuss this evening. So what is the question? <laughs> Just this last part, I didn't... The question was in the description given the other night about the stages of insight that one goes through. from the stage of seeing things arise and pass away, through seeing the dissolution of things, and then the misery and the suffering of things, giving rise to that urge for deliverance, and then into equanimity. If one realizes or has the insight that one is this flow of change, then how is it possible to liberate oneself from this. Is that the question? In that context, the liberation or freeing oneself from this process means um, bringing the mind to that balance out of which the unconditioned manifests, or going beyond this process of mind and body, going beyond the the conditioned phenomena which are arising and passing away. And that is the freedom from this conditioned process. It comes about when the mind reaches a perfect balance, a perfect poise. It's out of that equanimity that there is an opening, a spontaneous opening to that which is beyond the mind and body. And that has been given many different names, the unconditioned, the unborn, Nibbana. So that is, it's that unconditioned or unborn which is the freedom from the conditioned, which is what this process is. In, in some of the different discourses or suttas that the Buddha gave, he says that if there were no unconditioned, if there were no unborn, then there could be no release from what is conditioned. But because there is that, then the possibility of freedom exists. Try and get something straight about 
Um, the distinction that you're making between parami and karma is not exactly uh, accurate. Um, parami is the force, the accumulated force of wholesome actions. And that those paramis operate within the domain of karma. So that's, it's not something outside of the karmic law. Okay. I, I did understand that. Mm -hmm. The reason I'm asking about karma is does that determine then in the force of karma that maybe a person lives to be, say, 50 years old or 100 years old or a deva maybe for 100 years instead of, you know, 9,000 years? Is that the accumulated? Accumulated parami, when that runs out, in other words, that's when the, that particular rebirth ends? Parami in the sense of mm, wholesome past actions uh, determine, for example, the length of life in a particular plane of existence or the circumstances of life within a plane of existence. And so when that force has run its, run its course, um, so then death happens and, and new rebirth. Is that, is that answering your question? Or? The question was, if karma has to do with the intention rather than the action, then does it not matter whether one carries out the action or not? Won't the karma then uh, be the same? Intention is a common mental factor, which means that it's arising in every moment of consciousness. And so, in performing an action, the intention must continue throughout the action for the action to continue. Remember the example given earlier in the retreat about intention was that of electricity running through a machine which powered the machine, powered the movement. If you unplug it, the movement stops. The force of karma and the the, the reason that the karma of an action is more powerful than the karma of an intention simply arising and passing away in the mind is that there are many more moments of intention involved as the action is carried out. So the karmic force builds up. The quality or the effect, the result of that action is determined by the motive or by the intention 
that is going along all the way through it. So in that sense, it's the motive or intention which determines the karma, but it's the duration or the extent or the number of moments of intention which make an action carried out more powerfully, powerful karmically than simply a moment of intention arising and passing. Just as another example, you know, suppose you have, uh, you know, before you came to this retreat and have been illuminated with great wisdom, you know, suppose you were outside and a mosquito landed on your arm and just you know, smacked it and killed it. There was intention there, there was motive, unskillful action. The karmic result of that is much less than if you went out hunting, for example, or killing a person. Because the number of intentions and the, the force, the, um, the duration of all of those intentions, all of those motives, extended over a much long period of time. And so the force accumulates and builds. That's why the karmic result is much heavier. Even though this is, this is also an unwholesome act, but it's just, it's quick and there aren't that many intentions involved, relatively speaking. Although there are, since there are 17 trillion mind moments, there are quite a few even in that. So both ways you, you accrue bad karma, whether you have the intention or whether you carry it out, you just get more if you carry it out. You just have yeah, considerably more. Yeah. I mean, this. <laughs> uh, the other question is more practical. It seems like uh, this doesn't happen all the time, but enough to make some concern. No matter how carefully I approach sitting, coming in, As soon as I uh, turn inward and begin actually concentrate, now and then I get a, a conglomeration of just uh, confused thoughts in the very beginning. Now, often this will uh, diminuendo, kind of just fades away, kind of. But now and then uh, I get entangled and caught up, and it, it disrupts the whole sitting because I can never get back to the breathing. What, what, could you, uh, what, what would you recommend as far as getting control? Now, I've tried several approaches. I've done exaggerated breathing uh, right in the beginning, which actually is bad because it just stimulates more, agitates more thought. I've actually turned to the breathing before I've sat down and made that the predominant <laughs> sensation, too. <laughs> uh, but it, the, nothing seems to really be 100% uh, effective. <laughs> <laughs> If you if you're finding that you know the the mind going off in thought for the first few minutes of the sitting sometimes um, has the power then to really um, condition the wandering mind for that whole sitting, what you might do is 
to do the first few minutes uh, sitting with your eyes open. Because you might find there's less tendency to get lost in thought right away. You know, if as you sit down, you, you keep your eyes open, but you, you attend to the breath. And then once you feel focused or concentrated on the breath, then mindfully to close the eyes. It's worth a try. <laughs> Uh, they are. There are techniques for developing mm, all of those Brahma-vihara. I don't know them. <laughs> but it's... Uh, I know that they're there. You know what? Uh, there's a, there's a, a book called the Visuddhimagga, which is translated as the Path of Purification. And it's a, one, it's a wealth of Dharma. Um, and in that, the, it's divided into three sections on sila, morality, concentration, and wisdom. It, there's quite an extensive uh, description of how to do the, um, all the concentration exercises, which these are. These fall into the concentration category. Sometimes. There's no, there's no rule for it. Sometimes we do it, sometimes we don't. The second question. <laughs> <laughs> I went to the, the chanting yeah. is, is part of the ritual. Um, this has to do... Remember the other night you told the story of a frog who, when at the moment of death, remembered something the Buddha said, it wasn't so much remembering the Buddha said, but was listening, was listening to the sound of the Buddha's voice. Checking up, eh? <laughs> I meant it literally, but... But anyway, so she said, well, that these lower animals, like insects and frogs and all, are rebirths of former beings. Therefore, it was a former whatever. And that gave me thought about the insects. Now, there are billions of 
upon beings of insects. Where do they all come from? That's, that's a good likelihood, you know, and, and certainly that's within the, uh, the realm of how it might happen. Um, because we, we can take rebirth on the same plane of existence many times in succession. We don't kill because all beings, at whatever level... Have you ever watched like uh, an insect just that might be caught in a drop of water? Or, or, you know, caught entangled in something? It's trying to get out. There's, a, there's an urge or a, a desire for life to continue. And because that's the same Right. In all beings, we develop a respect for that, right? for that um, life energy. It's not some. It, it's true that it might have been a former being. You know, it, it, it was something in its long history of of birth and death and rebirth. Uh, but the reason that we refrain from taking life is because taking life causes suffering. Right? And so we train ourselves to refrain from doing those things which cause suffering, either to ourselves or others. Right. It could, it could be from any... It, mm, it could be from taking birth from the insect realm, it could be taking birth from other animal realm, it could be taking birth from any of the lower realms, could take birth from human realm. Don't go around biting people. <laughs> I mean, the, the range of possibility is quite large. There are a lot. <laughs> I don't have any 
expertise in that particularly. <laughs> the only thing that I suggest is that one really looks to every other option before taking the life of beings. You know, and just to, to really see mm -hmm. you know, what is possible to do. And then if it, if it seems necessary, if it seems the only, the only way, um, to really fill the, the heart with compassion rather than with aversion or anger. I mean, all the sex, including mm -hmm. people here at the center, people associated mm -hmm. with the center. And it's really hard for me to understand. You know, when I hear you say, you know, you don't want to kill a mosquito, and then, you know, people go out and, and eating, you know, tuna fish or meat, mm -hmm. and I, I just can't put that together. It seems like it's... There is a difference. There, there is a difference, although not they're not unrelated, obviously. But in terms of the action itself, there is, there is quite a significant difference between uh, having the intention to kill something and then killing it, and eating meat which um, you did not ask to be killed for, to be killed directly. There is a connection, obviously. And if people, yeah, I'm, I'm saying there is a connection, but, and I know from personal experience, having one of the, the most difficult experiences that I went through and then kind of came up in my practice when I was training in the Peace Corps before I went to Thailand. Part of the Peace Corps training uh, was to um, kill chickens. And for some reason, they thought that we should know how to do that. <laughs> and the power of delusion in my mind was so great at that time that not only did I think that, yes, I should be able to do that, you know, I took pride in it. And so I, I have this or had this picture of me holding up this, you know, poor dead chicken <laughs> that I had just... <laughs> when that came up in the practice quite a few years later, and I was sitting and things, <laughs> things that we've done have this power to uh, surface, it was quite horrendous, you know, to relive that experience with the sensitivity that one has in practice. There is no comparing the intensity and karmic consequence of that act with eating meat or fish. It's just on a very different level. As I said, there is some connection, and so there probably is some, there's some karma involved, but it's, it's nowhere near of the same level of intensity. 
This question came up in the Buddha's time for the monks and nuns who would go out and beg for food. The question came up, can they accept meat or fish? And the Buddha replied that it's okay to accept it if somebody offers, if they have not asked that it be killed for them, if they do not even suspect that it was killed specifically for them. Um, But if it's something that people had for themselves and then offered it, there was nothing unwholesome in taking it. And so just as a reference point of understanding, that could be a context. And then everybody comes to their own decision on what to do with that. And maybe those of you who have had an experience similar to mine will be able to relate the difference to the difference in the mind state involved. Because that's where where the uh, karmic force is generated and it's tremendously different. It's, It's just a whole different mind state. And I'm not, I'm in no means encouraging you to, you know, eat meat or fish or whatever. Um, you know, if, if there's that level of sensitivity that really responds to the connection of supply and demand, I think that's quite... quite a wholesome and, and beautiful sensitivity. It's just to clarify the point. So you're really saying to look specifically to the mind state and not conceptually. Actually, I'm looking at it somewhat conceptually, but to really look at, at the exact, you know, exactly what's right. in the mind. Right. We've been around, say, eating dairy products, which is a great deal of suffering on dairy products, death and suffering. Actually, there is no way to live on this planet without killing things. Every time we breathe in, you know, how many microorganisms? Uh, and so it, we try to minimize. You know, we try to minimize as much as possible the amount of suffering that our actions cause. Suggestion for streamlining? Uh, 
I would just note thinking, note, note thinking, notice how it comes and goes, come back to the breath. <laughs> <laughs> Along, and along with that arise a whole combination of different mental factors which condition how the consciousness or the knowing is relating to the object. So those mental factors color the knowing. For example, there's, there's knowing of a sound right? or knowing of a sight. In that moment of knowing, there are seven mental factors which always arise. These are called the common factors, volition being among them, right? In contact and feeling, and there are seven of them. And then there can be a variety of other factors which may or may not arise, like mindfulness, right? like wisdom, like greed, like anger. And so in each moment, these, these mental factors which arise color that particular moment of consciousness. The knowing itself is pure. Right? It's, just, it's just the knowing of the object. It's the mental factors which color that moment of knowing. And what we're trying to do in the practice is cultivate those wholesome factors of mind so that they arise more and more frequently in every moment of consciousness. Because it's these, it's these wholesome mental factors among which are called the factors of enlightenment. It's those factors which bring about this balance of mind and allow the mind to open right, to the unconditioned. When we say that uh, there's knowing without a knower, what that means is that the knowing of anything, of a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste. Right? Well, let me give you an example of, of what conditions the arising of, of consciousness, of knowing. Suppose there's a sight. How does seeing consciousness arise? It arises when there are four causes. If you have four causes, then that seeing consciousness will, will arise. What are the four? One is the physical eye that's working. One is an object coming in front of the eye. If it comes in back, you're not going to see it. The third factor is light. If it's totally dark, you won't see it either. And the other is attention. 
there's no attention present, if you're absorbed in something else, you won't see. And perhaps you've had the, the experience, sometimes, sometimes it happens in the walking, right, where you can be so attentive to the sensation of the movement that you have these moments when you're not seeing, even though your eyes are open and there's light and there's color in front of it, right? because the attention is not there. If you have those four things, then seeing consciousness arises. And like everything else, this, this process of consciousness is arising and vanishing momentarily. In that sense, knowing does not belong to anybody. There's no one who is having it, or holding it, or containing it. Rather, given these conditions, knowing arises. In that sense, there's no one, there's no knower behind it. There's knowing, there's the consciousness of the object. There can be mindfulness arising in that moment of knowing, which is mindful of the knowing. Right? Just, just as we can be mindful of the object, mindful of the sound, of the thought, of the sensation, we can also be mindful of consciousness, mindful of knowing. But mindfulness, too, is not I or self. The function of mindfulness is simply to notice what it is that's arising in that moment. Maybe you could just substitute human organism for knower, because this has got to happen within the human organism. So then it doesn't seem to make that much Because the human okay. organism is what supports all this in the, the, the package of... Okay, but it, you have to be a little careful, in, just in that you don't create kind of human organism as some permanent holder or receiver of experience. Mm. I mean, the, the misery and the urge for deliverance and, the, you know, that, that stage where you see everything kind of empty and dissolving mm. and, and then miserable and then wanting to be free and that kind of thing. Um, I would say that generally it proceeds on this quite microscopic moment-to-moment -moment level although um, there are many stories of people becoming enlightened and realizing the unconditioned when hearing a discourse or you know a, a branch rustles in the wind or right? just when when all the conditions and it could be because of previous work in this lifetime, could be because of past parami. Right? Uh, when just the mind, in that moment, right, comes to that perfect balance and the, the conditions are all there.
for it to happen. So I would say it doesn't necessarily have to proceed, you know, at that, t at that time, on this microscopic level, through the different stages, although mostly that's how it happens. I mean, when you, again, when you read the discourses, many, many times, you know, people would just be listening to a discourse, and the mind would be so open and so receptive, a single word would be enough. We were probably the ones sitting listening to those discourses, not paying close attention. <laughs> so our karma is to have to come back and do a little more work. It depends at what, at what stage of enlightenment or stage of opening was realized. If it was just the first stage of realization, then there's more work to do. If it was complete enlightenment, with the complete eradication of defilement, what that means, what, what obscures our wisdom? What obscures it are defilements. There's, there's greed and desire and anger and fear and comparing and judging. and These are the things that, con that cover right, the truth of what's happening. If those have been eradicated, then there's nothing which is um, hiding right, the truth. And so the wisdom is there. There's nothing more to do. One of the, the most inspiring phrases to me in all of the readings, it's, there are these wonderful, uh, they're called the, the Songs of the Brethren and the Songs of the Sisters, right? uh, which are the enlightenment songs of, of these people, these men and women who have attained realization. And the, one of the phrases, right, which is um, in many of these songs, is the phrase, done is what had to be done. And I find that so, wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to say that? <laughs> done is what had to be done. The task is done, is completed, is finished. Because the defilements have been all uprooted from the mind. So we're working on it. <laughs> Yes. Experience doesn't happen that way to 
How would you how would you propose to look at it um, in another way? I don't have an What comes to mind, and I mean, it's an interesting philosophical question. I don't, I'm not exactly sure it has uh, any practical significance in that here we are in this body and mind. And so we have to work within the context of what our experience is. And I don't see any alternative to that. But if you could think of one, I would. Appreciate hearing it. <laughs> the doubt being what? that was mentioned before, and I know you're aware of this, as the, as the ver- part of the chant is the, um, kind of the virtues of the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha are expressed. One of the aspects of the Dharma that is um, mentioned is the aspect of come and see. It's not a question of come and believe. And so there's no belief system required at all. The invitation is to come and see for oneself what is true. As you walk on the path, as we all do, we come to a deeper understanding of this relative truth the truth of relative conditioned existence, because we're observing it, which means all the conditions of the mind and the body, all those factors, the elements. And this path of awareness leads to the experience of the absolute truth, or the unconditioned. And again, it's not a question of believing it or not believing it. It's a question of having enough faith to um, proceed along so that one can see for oneself. Because that's where the doubt is finally overcome. 
the fetter, as I mentioned the other night, the first realization of Nibbana, or the unconditioned, <laughs> uproots three fetters from the mind. One of them is the belief in self. One is belief in ceremony or ritual as a way to freeing the mind. And the third is doubt. And so until that point, there will be doubt in the, in the mind, latent in the mind, if not, if not actually manifesting. But as one practices, confidence in the path grows based on your own level of experience of it, leading to the final eradication of doubt at that moment. And so there's nothing to really say which could eliminate doubt from the mind completely. It really has to come from one's own uh, depth of realization. Kind of just a framework, maybe, or a context for putting all of that in, which has to do with uh, the purpose behind all this. Why are we doing this? Because it's, it's, as you know, a tremendous effort, a tremendous commitment. The purpose of it is to come to the end of suffering, right? for ourselves and then to help other people come to the end of suffering. And we can measure all along the way, even if we have not completed the journey, even if we cannot yet say done is what had to be done, still all along the path, can we look in our lives and see out of this, the wisdom that we've developed, is there less suffering in our lives? Right? When there's less greed or less hatred or less delusion, is there more suffering or less suffering? And the path of practice, what we're doing moment to moment, right, is eradicating on a momentary level greed, hatred, delusion. Because that's what's happening in every moment of mindfulness. Right? There's no grasping. There's no condemning. There's no forgetting. And so in a practical way, that can become the measure right, of our development. I think, it, <laughs> I mean, people, of course, are quite free to work for any goal that they like. You know, whether it's to be reborn as the Queen of England, <laughs> or to feel a little happier in this life, or to become a Deva, or to become a Brahma, or whatever. You know, any, any, 
What the Buddha did, and, and it's so wonderful, basically he just laid out the path. He said, here's how it works. This is the system. Right? You want to go to the hell realms? Do this. Right? You want to become a hungry ghost? Do this. You want to become an animal? You want to become human? You want to become a deva? You want to become a brahma? You want to become free? And so really we have to see in our own hearts what is it that we're desiring? What is it that we're practicing for? And then do what's appropriate to that, to that goal. Of course, as you get a little savvy in the process, you see that nothing less than freedom is going to actually make you very happy. It'll be temporary happiness. But then again, we're still caught on this cycle. And so, just as we go along, there's one story of a monk. I'll abbreviate the story. Since, but he was... The Buddha tricked him into practice by promising him 500 celestial nymphs. He said... Because he was so enraptured of, he, he had this beautiful princess, and he was so enraptured before he became a monk. And so the Buddha had to promise him this in order to, to get him to, to practice. And so he practiced and practiced, but in the course of the practice, he began to understand, you know, the, understand the Dharma, the truth, and his motivation changed, and he became fully enlightened as happens in all these stories. <laughs> so deception can be skillful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's call it skillful means. <laughs> Just to note the feeling. The feeling is always arising with the object. So it's not happening apart from the object. Right? The I, I would not... I think that you'll get too discursive doing that. Uh, and as I mentioned, the, the feelings that arise, arise as a karmic result. That's the reason sir, the, the feelings arise in each moment. Well, it, it's arising with that moment of experience, but the cause of it coming could be, could be some past karmic cause. But it, it's arising with that particular moment, that particular object. I wouldn't think too much about it. Yeah, I think that's <laughs>
<laughs> this is the answer to most things. It would depend actually on just the sequence of uh, actually what was going on in your mind. Uh, whether in that sequence uh, the motive behind the movement was based, or the motive was based on wisdom or based on aversion. Uh, and only you know that. <laughs> You'll have to ask an arhant. <laughs> um, I think that there's wisdom in uh, taking care of the body. In the Buddha, um, the teaching is one of the middle path between self-indulgence and self-mortification. And so, just to find that place of balance in ourselves where we're taking care of the body and we're not inflicting harm or damage on it, that seems to be uh, not very skillful. On the one hand, and on the other hand, can we be with painful feeling and observe it without pulling away from it if it's not causing harm? So that would be like one example of, of a difference. I wouldn't, I, it doesn't sound like that's so much of a problem. Uh, mostly I would be aware of it as you experience it, right, without having an idea in your mind of how you should be experiencing it. It's like you feel it as delicately and as closely as possible, right, as is possible in that moment. Because there can be many different reasons for for feeling the sensations distant. Um, 
sometimes it may be lack of attention, but sometimes one is really tuning in to uh, the insubstantiality of them. And so every time you come close, at times it happens that when you come close, it just fades away. You come close and it fades away and fades away. That's not a problem in the practice. That's an insight into the insubstantial nature of sensations or sounds or whatever. Um, and so I wouldn't so much be concerned with... Mostly it's to stay very attentive to how you're experiencing the sensation and to what happens when you observe it. And just let the practice take its own course. The difference between content and process, which is a very important um, shift in the practice. In the beginning of practice, what we do is try to get very accurate with what it is that's happening. Right? And so, and we use the labeling for that, for that purpose. So we see the thought or sound or what a particular sensation is. We see the what. Right? But as we observe in this careful way, what happens is that we begin to see for ourselves not only what it is that's there, but also the fact that it comes into being and passes away. Right? And slowly the mind begins to shift in emphasis from the emphasis on what it is that's happening. We begin to be equally aware of the fact that it's arising and passing, right? the how it's happening. And that's the shift from content to process. And there are times when we begin to see how things are changing so quickly um, that the what becomes less and less important because in the moment of seeing it, it's gone. Right? And so there's much less reaction to the particular content, it doesn't matter. When you're observing thoughts coming and going very quickly, what's the difference what the thought is saying? You know, it can be an exalted thought, it can be a murderous thought, and if you're just seeing it dissolve in the moment of noting it, the content is not important, it's just, it's a conditioned, content is conditioned by something. Mostly it comes with time, from care in noticing what is there, because as you're looking that carefully, you will begin to see. You know, a, a natural function of looking very carefully at what is there, you'll begin to see that it is arising and passing. You could focus particularly on the beginning and end point of each experience. So the mind really begins to highlight the moment of it arising and the moment of it disappearing whether it's with the sound or the breath, the beginning and end point of the rising or falling or in or out, or the beginning and end point of a sensation. That can help to direct the mind in that way. Okay, one last question.
I'm, I'm, what's happening, and I'm, I'm not, I'll explain it in terms of uh, sort of the Abhidhamma understanding, but I don't have a, a thorough understanding of this, so I can just share with you to the extent that I understand it. What happens is that mind moments are arising and passing very quickly. And again, in a moment of mindfulness of greed, for example, actually what one is aware of is the previous mind moment. It's you, it's you become aware of the greed of the last moment. But in the moment of being mindful of that, you're not greedy. And because the mind moments are changing so quickly, there can be many interspersals of greed, mindfulness, greed, mindfulness, greed, mindfulness, like that. Um, and what happens when there's, a, when there's a strong, unwholesome state, you know, like greed or anger, when there's not any mindfulness, it's like this continuum of unwholesome factors arising one after the other. When we bring mindfulness to it, it's like interspersing moments of mindfulness in that continuum right, of greed factor or, or hatred factor. And the more moments of mindfulness we intersperse in it, it's like the... it starts to break it up. Right? And, and that's why it gets less and less. Right, definitely, definitely. Okay, uh, just a few, a few announcements. A reminder. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.